I'd like to read with you from Lamentations 3, the first 24 verses. Lamentations 3, beginning at verse 1, all the way to verse 24. It's on page 873 of the Church Bible, 873. Lamentations 3, verse 1 to 24. Jeremiah is the author of this. Jerusalem has been destroyed, and he is reflecting an extensive song on God's dealing with them and their need for his grace and compassions and um, faithfulness. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore have I hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. Thus far the reading of God's word. I want to speak to you tonight from the verses 22 to 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Friends, from time to time we look back and reflect over the different seasons of our life. What kind of a season has it been for you? What kind of a year has it been for you? Maybe it's been a good year. Or maybe it's been a hard year. Maybe it's been a season of prosperity, or maybe it's been a season of adversity. Maybe it's been a year of spiritual progress, or maybe it's been a year of spiritual regress. And sometimes we need help to reflect and think back, and Jeremiah helps us by telling us about his reflections. And he wants us to come to the same conclusion that he came to, and to say with him, great is thy faithfulness. Now that's a gift, to have a spouse who is faithful, a parent who is faithful, a friend who is faithful. But what about the Lord? Has he been reliable and dependable also for us in our lives? And what if everything seems to go wrong? Still we need to say, see and say with Jeremiah, great is thy faithfulness. And that's what you can write over the sermon, great is thy faithfulness. We'll see three things. First of all, the backdrop of despair. Secondly, the confession of hope. And thirdly, the relationship in grace. Great is thy faithfulness, the backdrop of despair, first of all, secondly, the confession of hope, and thirdly, the relationship in grace. Now, it's not always easy, friends, to have trust in our trials, to sing praises in our problems. To do that means we need often a change of perspective. And we see that with Jeremiah here. Uh, let me illustrate how important perspective is. Uh, in 1488, a Portuguese explorer named Bartholomew Diaz became the first European to safely navigate a dangerous cape on the southern tip of Africa, where the Atlantic and Indian oceans meet. Because of the difficulty of the journey, the rough seas and the stormy weather, he named it the Cape of Storms. Later, this cape would receive another name, and some say that Bartholomew Diaz gave it also this name, the Cape of Good Hope, because of the important trade route it became to India. So one cape with two names. One reflects the hazards of the journey, the other reflects the hope of the destination. The one name reflects the danger of the journey, and the other reflects the blessing of the destination. The one name reflects the problems that come our way, the other reflects the prospect that awaits. Now that's life. What you see depends on your perspective. And your perspective can change when you focus on the hope that's in the Lord rather than on the hazards 
that you encounter along the way. That's what happens to Jeremiah here. In this book of Lamentations, we see Jeremiah filled with great sorrow because of the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 BC. The one thing that the people of Judah thought would never happen had happened. Jerusalem has been leveled and laid waste and many people have been taken into exile. Because of Judah's iniquity and idolatry, the Lord has sent his people Israel into captivity. And the judgment he had threatened, he carries out because the people refuse to repent. And Jeremiah, who's been a faithful prophet for 40 years, although it seems that his ministry bought, brought little fruit, he's greatly troubled. And if you read his words, he's a man who's struggling, he's full of despair, he's despondent. You see, there's not just the mass suffering, there's personal suffering. This suffering does not just affect the group generally, it affects people individually. And Jeremiah in this chapter particularly becomes very personal in the face of the devastation and the ruin of Jerusalem. That's how he begins uh, this chapter. Verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Well, we might say, then just pray. Jeremiah says in verse 8, I do, but he doesn't listen to me. He shuts out my prayer. I can't get through to him. Verse 9, he's, he's set up a blockade so that I can't make any progress. And Verse 10 and following, he's saying, the Lord is like a bear or a lion who's dragged me off into the bushes and mauls me. He's like an archer who uses me for target practice in verse 12, that Jeremiah feels like giving up on life and he's forgotten what happiness is. It's an honest confession of the despair he feels. He's not pretending that everything is all right, that everything is okay. Here's a man of God, but he's in the depths. He's perplexed, he's confused, he's troubled, and he doesn't just keep it to himself. He pours it out to the Lord, as we just sung together. Before his face my grief I show and tell my trouble and my woe. Do you ever do that? Have you ever taken the trouble and the sorrow that we face and bring it to the Lord without having any pat answers ourselves? Jeremiah can't pretend that everything's okay. And he knows that there's a cause for all these problems that the root cause is sin. Skip down to verse 42. There he's honest. We've transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven us. We've been living contrary to God 
and in willful rebellion. And yet, in the midst of it all, he still says, great is thy faithfulness. Do you see the dark backdrop to his confession? You see, he's not just sitting in a wall-to-wall, carpeted, air-conditioned room on a bright spring day in an easy chair in a comfortable place, mulling over what's been an easy life. No, these words are spoken in the rubble and ruin of a battered city. Nebuchadnezzar has ravaged, besieged Jerusalem for something like 18 months. And it's as if we see Jeremiah walking through the rubble, looking at the gutted homes, seeing the gutted lives. Imagine finding yourself looking around at the rubble and the devastation brought by war or fire or tornado and smelling the smoke and seeing the misery and agony in the faces of those around you. How can he say, but I have hope and great is thy faithfulness. Well, let's look at that in our second point, the confession of hope. You know, when you see what Jeremiah has gone through and the great troubles he's faced, you want to listen to him. Uh, in verse 21, this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. How come? How can you move from despair to hope. Well, we see it in our text, the verses 22 to 24. He has looked at what is around him, the gutted homes, the gutted lives, but he stops looking at that and he begins looking up to the Lord. He stops looking at the badness of life around him and considers the goodness of God above him. He's looking up to the sovereign and not around him at the situation. He's telling us in the words of 40, uh, Psalm 42, you know what I'm doing? Hope in God. That's what he's doing. He's turning to the Lord and thinks of who he is. And as he does that, certain things come to mind. And in the way of remembering, he gets this grip on hope and he thinks of how good God is. And he says it with three things. First of all, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Yeah, the word translated steadfast love is a fitting translation. It's a, it's a rich word in the Hebrew. It uh, speaks of love and a steadfast sort of love, a resolute loyalty. It, it speaks of the loyal love of God, the steadfast love of God. He's not speaking of the emotional love, but of dedicated love committed love. It's not the love of affection he speaks of, first of all, but the love of dedication. It's the love of a committed husband or wife for their spouse, even when their marriage is going through a hard time. Or it's the love of a parent for a child who's struggling 
But the parent says, son, I'm not giving up on you. I'm not writing you off. I'm not going to let you go. This word is used in the history of David with Mephibosheth, 2 Samuel 9. David, remember, had made a covenant with Jonathan, and Jonathan has died. But when David finds out that there is still a son of Jonathan alive, he summons Mephibosheth to his home. Now, that might have been a nerve-wracking encounter for Mephibosheth as he was brought before the king. After all, he's a grandson of David's uh, archenemy, King Saul. Now, what all went through Mephibosheth's mind when he was brought before King David? Second Samuel chapter 9 seems to show him with great anxiety and fear. But I don't know what all went through his mind. I, I think that Mephibosheth expected the worst but he didn't receive that. Maybe one of the things that he thought of after the meeting was, I'm still here. I'm still alive. I haven't been finished off. I haven't perished. That's the idea here, that the steadfast love of the Lord has preserved me. A lot has happened, but one thing hasn't happened. I haven't been finished off. I haven't been destroyed. Now, that may not be a big mercy, but it is still a mercy. And sometimes when we're in trials, when we think that the Lord doesn't care for us, but the fact that we're alive speaks of the care and mercy of the Lord. There are times when we should have perished, times when he could have perished, but in his Steadfast love, he has spared us. He has not cut us off. That's the marginal note of the ESV too. He hasn't cut us off in his steadfast love. Yeah, it's unfortunate that steadfast love is in the singular in the ESV. It's actually in the plural. Jeremiah is saying there's manifold displays of the steadfast love of the Lord, abundant manifestations of the steadfast love of the Lord, whereby I'm still here. His committed love has held on to me even when I've let go of him. That's the first thing he says. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, or the steadfast love of the Lord, I'm not cut off. Second thing he says, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. When Jeremiah uses this word, mercies, translated in the ESV, or compassions as it is in the KJV, he again uses a word that has to do with love. Um, it has to do with love. The steadfast love, that spoke of love. Mercies here also speaks of love. But there's a difference. The steadfast love spoke of the commitment to love, the dedication to love. You need that in a relationship. 
But if that's all there is to a relationship, if a husband does his duty for his wife and is loyal to his wife and fulfills his task for his wife, but doesn't have any feeling for his wife, no deep-seated affection for his wife, I would think that the wife would not be satisfied. She doesn't just want the husband's hand showing love to her. She wants his heart feeling love for her. And that's the word here. It's compassion, mercy, speaking now of the emotion of love, the feeling of love. It's the same word that's used in the history of Joseph in Genesis 43, verse 30, after 20 years when he sees his brother Benjamin again, then deep inside of Joseph's being, he's moved with compassion for his brother, tender affection. It's that kind of affection that's tender that a mother has for her child who's suffering. Now the Lord has this tender affection for those who trust in him. And, and they never come to an end. They don't fail. They don't run out. They don't dry up, he's saying. The fountain of this affection, this tender affection for his people doesn't run dry. In fact, his mercy, his mercies are new every morning, Jeremiah says. It's as if he's looking back in his daily diary in which he's written, and every day he says, even though there was devastation in all around, his mercies were still there. And so he can look forward with expectation for new mercies for tomorrow. And if I can say it this way, mercy is like manna. You remember the, that as the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness to the promised land, each day as they woke up, there was manna for them to eat. Boys and girls, there was no grocery store for them to go and stock up for the week. And if they tried to collect more manna than they needed, it would spoil overnight. God was trying to teach the people of Israel to trust him for their daily bread. And now Jeremiah is saying that God's mercy is like manna. He has new mercies for every day. He has new mercies for every new challenge. He has new mercies for every new trial. And you don't need to live on yesterday's mercies. You don't have to live on stale bread mercies, on old mercies. He has new mercy, fresh mercy for every day. It's like a married couple who has been together for maybe three decades. In the morning, the husband wakes up and opens his eyes. And he looks over and he sees the face of his wife, whom he has loved since, like forever, it seems. And he kisses her forehead. And as she opens her eyes, she hears him say, Honey, I love you today. And what does she say in response? Will she say, did you not love me yesterday? No, she's going to say, me too. I love you today too. You see, when he says, I love you today, it doesn't express any change in his commitment to her. 
She knows that when he says, I love you today, he's giving a fresh expression to an established fact. That's what the Lord does for those who trust in him. He finds fresh ways to express his love and mercies every morning. You don't know what expression of mercy you're going to get, but you can wake up each morning expecting fresh mercy from him. Now, how many things can you count on for sure every morning? You go to bed at night, and by the time you wake up in the morning, things that you care about so much can be gone. And things that we don't want taken from us can be taken from us. Everything can change overnight. Our world is chaotic. <coughs> Our health can be taken away from us. My father went to bed one night perfectly healthy, and the next morning he was in the hospital, and he's never been the same because of a stroke. Your financial situation can change overnight. Your family situation can change. Your work situation, your career situation. There's not much that you can count on to stay constant day in and day out. But whatever changes, the Lord promises that if he wakes me up in the morning, there will be new mercy for whatever the day may bring. There will be providing mercies, forgiving mercies, strengthening mercies, uh, comforting mercies, fresh tokens of his mercies for every day. And as Jeremiah thinks over this, Jeremiah sums it up with this confession, the third thing he says, great is your faithfulness. And notice in the first two confessions, he is speaking about the Lord. But now we hear him speaking to the Lord. That's how you know you've got your theology right, when theology results in doxology. When sound doctrine leads to true praise, great is your faithfulness. Now, faithfulness in the Hebrew gives a picture of something supporting us steadying us. It's the same word that's used to describe the support that Aaron and Hur gave to Moses as his hands were uplifted to God uh, as the people were in battle against Amalek. Hur gave, and to Aaron, they were upholding him, supporting him, steadying him. And, and, and you've known people like that in your life. Sometimes people passing through a hard time, they say, you know, my, my husband's been a rock to me steadying and supporting influence during this time. Jeremiah says that's what the Lord is above all. He's faithful. He's dependable. He, he keeps his promises. And think of some of the ways in which he shows his faithfulness. Let me mention four or five. He is faithful in affliction. Faithful in affliction. Psalm 119, verse, one, verse 75, I'm quoting from the KJV. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hath afflicted me. He's faithful in affliction, friends. 
He's faithful when we face temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. He's faithful in sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 24. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. He's faithful in forgiveness. 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is always faithful. 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Is that your confession? Can you sing that today? I know we're in church. We're going to sing it later. But it's easy to sing, Great is thy faithfulness on good days, at a wedding, anniversary, graduation, promotion. It's easy to sing it when things are going well, but can you sing it on your bad days? And in the brokenness of your life and in the pain in your heart, with a bad report from the doctor and with financial turmoil that you're not sure how you're going to deal with, and when there are family tensions that you don't know how to resolve, can you say, Lord, I don't know how we're going to get through this but I still believe great is thy faithfulness. And then there's something unusual in that expression, don't you think? I mean, it says great is your faithfulness. It's not often that we talk about someone showing great faithfulness and others showing small faithfulness. I mean, you're either faithful or you're not. I mean, there's a word for a husband who is faithful 90% of the time. A man who is 90% of the time faithful to his wife, he's unfaithful. But, but with God, you see, Jeremiah is saying, he's not only faithful, he's always faithful, unwaveringly faithful, constantly faithful, resolutely faithful. He's always there for you never lets you down, won't quit on you, however dark and difficult your way might be. There is no shadow of turning with him. And that's what we need to see. That's what we need to say. And that's what we need to sing. Yeah, have we seen it? Do we praise him for it? Or do we take it for granted? I heard a story of a couple visiting for the first time, Old Faithful, one of the geysers in Yellowstone National Park where this geyser erupts with great regularity that park rangers have a clock on when it's going to erupt again. And this, this husband and wife, they went to the Old Faithful Inn across from the geyser for, for lunch. And there they have a clock that counts down to the next eruption. And as the clock was counting down and the time was coming for Old Faithful to erupt again, the, this man and his wife, they left their tables like the other guests and they went to the large window to uh, watch the geyser erupt. And it was stunning to see. 
and that the tourists all ooed and awed and took pictures and all the rest. But what surprised this man the most was that the busboys and the waitresses kept doing their work, filling water glasses, cleaning tables, without stopping to be impressed with old faithful. You see, they'd been in the presence of old faithful so long that it had lost its wonder for them. And is that not a danger for us? That we take his goodness and faithfulness for granted and we've lost the wonder of his steadfast love and his compassions and his daily mercies and his faithfulness. You know what we need? A fresh sense of his grace that's enjoyed in our relationship in grace, a living relationship with him. That's our third point, the relationship in grace. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Jeremiah has spoken about the Lord in verse 22. Verse 23, he shifts to speaking to the Lord. And now he begins to speak to himself about the Lord, or maybe better said, his soul is speaking to him about the Lord. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Sometimes we speak to our souls, but there are also times, if it's right, when our souls speak to us and remind us of the things that we have forgotten and remind us of the things that we have lost sight of. And Jeremiah's soul is reminding him that the Lord is his portion. Portion uh, refers to an inheritance, an endowment, a possession. It's, it's real estate language. It's used in Numbers 18 to describe how the children of Israel came into the promised land and every tribe received a portion of land except for the tribe of Levi. What was the explanation that the tribe of Levi didn't receive any land? Numbers 18 verse 20 says, the Lord will be their portion. Why don't they get any land? Why are they left off the list? Because the Lord is their portion. He'll care for them. He's all they need. Friends, he's all that we need. Someone has said, the, the one who has God and many other things in this life has no more than the one who has God alone. The Lord is my portion, Jeremiah says. And he says that not at a high point in his life, but at a low point in his life, when so much has been lost and destroyed and taken away, but with everything has been taken away, what does Jeremiah still have? He has the Lord, you see. That's the comfort for the believer. If you lose everything, you still have the Lord. But if you don't have the Lord, even if you have lots of other things, but if you miss the Lord, then you miss the steadfast love of the Lord and the mercy of the Lord and the compassion of the Lord and the faithfulness of the Lord that gives you 
hope in this life and a future. And without the Lord in your life, that's a pretty slippery existence. That's what Asaph says. Psalm 73, Asaph says, he's been envious of the wicked who had so much, who had life going for them, no problems it seemed at all. Then Asaph came to the sanctuary and then he realized, then it sunk in. In the blink of an eye, they can be pushed into eternal destruction. And Asaph, though he was struggling, though he was shaken in faith, he has the Lord still. He says in Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? There's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. Jeremiah has the Lord as his portion. Asaph has the Lord as his portion. Jesus, too, had the Lord as his portion. Even in the hours of greatest suffering on the cross, sometimes people highlight the fact that there was a a time when he could not call God Father as he hung on the cross. In the depths of his suffering, no, he could not call God Father. Then he said, my God, my God. But did you hear that? He still could say, my God. Jesus, in the depths of his suffering, as God had forsaken him, God was still his God. It's as if Jesus is saying what Jeremiah is saying. In the depths of his suffering, the Lord is my portion. Even as I'm forsaken, great is thy faithfulness. And with Christ, you can go through this life, even with all the trials and the burdens and the distresses and the anguish. And I don't know what that is in your life. But with all of that, you can go through it, knowing his mercies, his compassions, his faithfulness, his steadfast love. He gives me more than enough. He is more than enough. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, what a wonder that in the midst of great tribulation, there's deep consolation. And we pray for that change of perspective that sees the cape of storms, to be a cape of good hope. And we pray that it would lead to trust and thanksgiving, confidence and praise. Apply thy word, Lord, to our hearts and bless us in mercy. And that to praise the triune God forever. In Jesus' name, amen.